It is a really great honor for me to be here today, and I want to thank Lou for inviting me, and it just shows, you know, what a couple of bucks can do. Um, my, wife, um, my wife wanted to come to this today. My wife is essentially a musician. She wanted to come. Can everybody hear me, by the way? Is this thing on? You know, kind of, um, she wanted to be here today, and she impulsively said, I'm going to this, and we got the ticket and everything, and she realized she had too much work to do. And she just had taken two weeks off to go to South Carolina to help out my daughter-in-law who just had a baby, and the baby was very ill. The baby's fine now, thankfully. So uh, she realized she just spoke too soon. But she definitely told me she wants to come next year. Um, but anyway, I think because she backed out, we're entitled to make a couple of jokes at her expense. <laughs> These are true stories, though. Uh, I sent away for the Vodmises uh, T-shirt with Carl uh, Menger's picture on it. And the first time I wore it, she was walking by, and she kind of just caught the picture and the name in the corner of her eye and didn't pay any attention to it. But later on, she says, I can't imagine you wearing a T-shirt glorifying Joseph Mengele. <laughs> After 35 years, you just don't get to know a person very well, do you? <laughs> and the other, the other story was, uh, it was just the other night, I, I, the, so, the shirt is very soft, and I'm a terrible sleeper. If everything isn't quite right, I just can't sleep. So the shirt's soft, I turn it into a nightshirt, I wear it to bed. So I'm getting into bed, and she looks at me, and she says, you know, I can't really get, to get used to uh, a strange face getting into bed with you. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the original topic of the, of the talk suggested by Lou was why can't religious people understand the benefits of the market? And I thought that was a great idea, but since I'm, I'm a Catholic, cradle Catholic, I've, I've studied under Catholics, and I'm into Catholic uh, things, theology as well as economics and politics, uh, I thought maybe if I just focused on the Catholic Church for a while, that would be... Uh, much more appropriate for me to do, but nevertheless, the original topic will still come in here because I believe the other branches of Christianity are in fact affected by the same stuff, but unfortunately the worst are the Catholics. Now let me turn this on. Uh, I put this up here kind of to, to so you can find what shell the P was under as we go through these things. I won't talk about absolutely everybody, but it's a very complicated thing. A few years ago, I gave a paper at the Austrian Scholars Conference entitled The Intellectual Origins of Modern Catholic Social Teaching on Economics, an extension of a theme of Jesus Huerta de Soto. In that paper, I documented the hostility of many of the main Catholic writers in economics to the free market. I demonstrated their ignorance of basic economic theory. I showed that many of these writers were literary men, using extremely negative similes and metaphors, to describe an economic system that they had already decided was evil. I showed that the church authorities themselves were hostile to the free market for two basic reasons. Firstly, they equated classical liberalism with the French Revolution and the bloody attacks of that event on the church. And secondly, the church's political power was being severely eclipsed in the 1800s. And this was blamed by the church authorities on liberalism in general, without distinguishing the various types of liberalism, nor looking at the economic theory separately from the anti-Christian attitudes of some liberal thinkers. Much to the chagrin of contemporary parroters of these attitudes, who equate them with official church teaching, the Catholic Church had been moving slowly toward an acceptance of the market. 
Even Pope Leo XIII, who was not really hostile to capitalism in general, made private property a natural right in the same way that John Locke did, in contradistinction to St. Thomas Aquinas, for whom private property was merely the most practical way to assure productivity. Pope Pius uh, XI, who condemned communism and Nazism, nevertheless set back the trend toward the approval of the market when he wrote the following. The ultimate consequences, of, by the way, he, lived, he writes this in the 30s, the ultimate consequences of the individualist spirit in economic life are those which you yourselves, venerable brethren, the bishops, and beloved children, the believers, see and deplore. Free competition has destroyed itself. Economic dictatorship has supplanted the free market. Unbridled ambition for power has likewise succeeded greed for gain. All economic life has become tragically hard, inexorable, and cruel. Which just brings me back to my childhood. I came from a very wealthy family. My dad was a big accountant. My mother taught in the New York City school system, the highest paid teachers of the nations, and we didn't even have air conditioning. Today, I have a really low salary teaching at the small Catholic college, and I have central air and central heat, and we've got like three cars, and so I don't, <laughs> I can't deal with this. Now, and of course, in a way, Pius can't be blamed for thinking this. The world was in the midst of the Great Depression, and no one at the time knew that it was caused, as Murray Rothbard and others have shown, by the various central banks and governments' manipulation of the currencies. Nevertheless, this attitude has been picked up by many Catholics who do not understand the development of doctrine, nor the idea that these specific economic and political theories are really outside the realm of ecclesiastical authority which should ascertain the accuracy of its facts prior to making moral pronouncements about them. Slowly but surely, as I showed in that paper, the church began to distance itself from these attitudes until a break was made by Pope John Paul II in his encyclical Centesimus Annus. Now, I have it on the highest authority that Pope John Paul II, prior to writing Centesimus Annus, spent a whole day with Friedrich Hayek, this discussion with Hayek, as well as having a number of advisors in the writing of the encyclicals, such as Michael Novak and Rocco Battiglioni, may account for the difference between this encyclical, not only from uh, uh, John Paul II's predecessors, but even from some of his own previous writings on the market. But in order to more thoroughly understand the tension in the thought of Catholics regarding the free market economics, it is necessary to examine more closely the nature and influence of the German historical school. Now, we Austrians know that the German historical school was the main theoretical obstacle to Karl Menger's attempt to advance a science of economics. And we can list uh, the main tenets of this German historical school as follows. First, it was that this is my own distillation of it. You may have others. Uh, it based itself on the epistemology of Humean nominalism and skepticism. Therefore, it rejected natural law. In other words, it rejected human beings' participation in the common nature. Therefore, it rejected the possibility of a science of economics in favor of a mere historical uh, uh, explanation of economics in each country. Basically, it was just purely historicism. It sees each state as the only real unit rejects the idea of the person, which you'll see later is very Hegelian. 
And therefore, it led to the idea of communitarianism and the organic state. And lastly, nostalgically yearned for the things of the medieval past to accompany the things in the last principle. So, for example, gills and the emphasis on agriculture and that kind of thing. And this is why they are called romantic economists. Now, many of those principles of the German historical school contradict the time-honored Catholic approaches to life. The key here is that the Catholic thinkers most influential in earlier economic thought and church teachings were adherent, adherents of this same German historical school, such that Catholic hostility to the free market is neither based on theological grounds nor on a science of economics, but merely on an adaption of this German historical school's approach. Now, the question we've asked, and I don't think others have really asked this. I haven't read everything that's ever been written. But we need to ask where the German historical school came from. We know that it was there. We know they thought like this. It was encouraged by, by the, the, uh, the Kaiser and everything else. Where did it come from? What is the source of all this misguided thinking that is not dead, but it is still with us in many circles? Its origins can be traced back as far as Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is known to be both a reactionary and a romantic. Rousseau was a reactionary because he saw all of modern society as evil. First, private property and then the division of labor coming from private property created work and therefore inequality. And here's a fairly lengthy quote which distills what he thought. He says, property was introduced, work became necessary, and the vast forests were changed into growing fields that bid to be watered with the sweat of men, where one could soon see slavery and misery germinating, ripening along with the crops. Oops. Now, this development destroyed the pristine primitive life that he referred to as the life of the noble savage. Continuing Rousseau, as long as men were satisfied with their rustic cabins, as long as they confined themselves to sewing together with thorns or fish bones the pelts that they used as clothing to adorn themselves with plumes and shells, to painting their bodies with various colors, as long as they applied themselves to tasks that took no more than one person to perform them, as long as the arts did not require the combined efforts of several hands, their lives were free, healthy, happy, and good for as long as their nature would allow, and they continued to enjoy the fruits of an independent commerce among themselves. Now, this view was substantially different from the contemporary mainstream, view, mainstream views. Despite the fact that Diderot's encyclopedia contained an essay by Rousseau on political economy, where he expressed much of the same views quoted above, it contained many articles and plates extolling technological advances. Many Catholic thinkers of the 19th through the 21st century see Rousseau as indirectly the father of the French Revolution, which these thinkers despise. They also lump together the capitalism, capitalism with the mentality that led to that revolution. But there is inherent contradiction here. If Rousseau was the father of the French Revolution, and the French Revolution gave impetus to the free market system, how can one reconcile Rousseau's anti-capitalism with the allegedly pro-capitalist French Revolution? Well, it just can't be done. The truth lies in the problem of romanticism, which from Rousseau onward would plague the continent. In the diagram, I start with German romanticism, but they got that from France. 
that came in from France big time. Essentially, Romanticism can be described as a cult of the past. In the case of continental Europe, hearkening back to the Ancien Regime and its supposedly idyllic life, contrasted with the era of the Revolution onward with its alleged destruction of that life. In this sense, Romanticism is a reaction to the Enlightenment and to the French Revolution in general, without discriminating among any benefits which have flowed from this period of history. One can see why Romanticism would have a great effect on politics and economics and cannot be considered a purely literary outlook as some tend to do. Nor was this all. Romantics, for example, de Mestre and Bonald, and to some extent Edmund Burke, rejected the idea that, was a, that there was a universal reason which applied to everyone in favor of the uniqueness of each nation and culture. This was really a rejection of natural law and hence of a universal science of economics. There was also an apocalyptic tendency in some of the German romantic thinkers, which is especially noteworthy considering that Germany was the place where romanticism had taken root the most. The French Catholics deplored the state of Europe after the revolution, but contrasted that with, quote, what we all await. Demestre rejoiced that the revolutionary fire, quote, had cleansed the place in preparation for the true architect. This is interesting, too, because I saw the same things in my town of Front Royal, Virginia, uh, which is very much a Catholic town because of the college that's there, uh, regarding um, uh, Y2K, because there were, there were a lot of people who thought this was the end of the technological world as we saw it. They were thrilled about the idea, and they stocked their basement with all sorts of food because we were going to go back to a barter economy, and everything was to be the way it should have been. And these people were sadly disappointed. Not a light bulb went out around the world, if you remember. <laughs> now, the German Friedrich Schlegel picked up this idea of an apocalyptic return to medieval culture from Demestre and spread it from Berlin with the aid of his brother and Schleiermacher, Novalis, Tieck, Halsen, and Schelling. To the romantic expectations of the rebirth of medieval culture and economics must be added the contribution of George Fried uh, Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Hegel believed in free exchange, but he also said that free exchange took place in civil society, and civil society is subject to control by the state. Trade would be controlled by the state for its own ends, which are not necessarily the same ends as the citizen. Not only is this a rejection of much economic law, but also it is the origin of the organic state, as well as economic nationalism. For Hegel, the perfection of the will of the world spirit is found in governmental edicts. If one takes out the reference to the world spirit, one arrives exactly at the view held by Heinrich Pesch, who's right up there in the top middle of the, of the uh, diagram, and other Catholic economic uh, thinkers. Uh, and you see Heinrich Pesch, well, I'm going to talk about him later, but he influences Oswald Mel Brunning, he influences Leo XIII, and from there you have an influence on Pius XI, uh, and hence that quote I read to you before. The reason for this control by the state and also the view that all nations are unique is seen in Hegel's conception of internal relations. The Hegelian doctrine of internal relations proposed that everything was an organic unity, such that one could not understand one aspect of, say, society on its own without understanding all of the other aspects of that society together. 
This meant that one could not develop a science of economics. One could only speak of economics as it operated in the milieu of German, French, or English culture. There were no laws of human action that applied to people as people. Hence, the Hegelian influence on the German historical school predisposed it to see economics as the development of economic institutions in a purely factual or positivistic way, and not in any way connected with the universal laws of human action, or coming from a common human nature. Another Hegelian influence on the German historical school was the idea of the essential importance of agriculture. In his philosophy of right, Hegel holds that agriculture is the backbone of society. Well, you can kind of understand that in those days, you know, food was not as plentiful as it is today, and of course, uh, people relied on agriculture. You can understand that. But it was detached from the economic realities of whether and to what extent the agricultural component of society is a benefit to that society. Hegel considered agriculture as an estate and should in itself receive representation in the legislature. Like Catholic distributists of the early 20th century and of today, Hegel sees an almost mystical component in agriculture. This is what he says. The substantial or agricultural class, is another name for the agricultural class, has its capital in the natural products of the soil which it cultivates. A soil which is capable of exclusive private ownership and which demands formation in an objective way and not mere haphazard exploitation. I don't know what that means. In other words, if Hegel ever worked for a living, you find out that the people who own the companies he would have worked for don't exploit things in a haphazard way either because you won't be able to produce anything. Well, they can't make computer chips out of chocolate, for example, as much as I would like to see that. In the face of the connection of agricultural work and its fruit with separate and fixed times of the year and the dependence of harvests on the variability of natural processes, the aim of need in this class turns into provision for the future. But owing to the conditions here, the agricultural mode of subsistence remains one which owes comparatively little to reflection and independence of will, and this mode of life is in general such that this class has the substantial disposition of an ethical life, which is immediate, resting on family relationship and trust. So in other words, you can't have family relationship, trust, and ethical life unless you're in agriculture. Everyone else outside of agriculture obviously is evil. The real beginning and original foundation of states has been rightly ascribed to the introduction of agriculture along with marriage because the principle of agriculture brings with it the formation of land and consequently exclusive private property. The nomadic life of savages who seek their livelihood from place to place brings back uh, to the tranquility of private rights and the assured satisfaction of their needs. Along with these changes, sexual love is restricted to marriage and this bond in turn grows into an enduring league inherently universal, while needs expand into care of a family and personal possessions into family goods. Security, consolidation, lasting satisfaction of needs, and so forth, things that are the most obvious recommendations of marriage and agriculture are nothing but forms of universality, modes in which the rationality, the final end and aim, asserts itself in these spheres. So, uh, like me, if you're not a farmer, uh, it must be some kind of an anomaly that I have a family, nice family relationship, been married for 35 years, and uh, I'm stable and everything else, and yet I couldn't grow my way out of a paper bag. Interestingly enough, the focus on agriculture has become an almost full-time occupation of some Catholics through the rebirth of the idea of distributism. Originally begun in England by Hilaire Belloc, whose dates were 1870 and 1953, and his adherents, such as Father Vincent McNabb, whose dates are 1868 1943. 
A new publisher, IHS Press, and I hate to give them publicity, has been started and pompously proclaims that Catholic social teaching has been dormant these many years, but has now been resurrection through their distributist publications. Quote, the editors are firmly convinced that the wisdom of Catholic social thought is today largely a buried treasure, untapped and almost wholly neglected. So all the work that myself and others have done in this field uh, just doesn't exist or something like that. From this romanticism, the German historical school derived the idea of the corporate state. The emergence of corporatism was, with romanticism, a reaction to the development of liberalism in the classical sense, industrialism, and sought to reintroduce the alleged harmonies and organic moral order of the medieval period prior to industrial society. This would be accomplished by establishing quasi-public state-licensed intermediate bodies in each industry, subject to government control. Each body would be composed of organizations of employers and employees. Industry-wide economic decisions would be made within each corporate body subject to state approval, which would assure those decisions were in the national interest. Now, this idea uh, brought up by people like Spahn and that kind of people influenced Pesch. Pesch in, Leo doesn't bring this up. Pesch influenced Nell Brunning, and Pius XI has that, same plan in Quadrigesa Milano. That's his plan. At the time, it was called Mussolini economics for good reasons. And the interesting thing is, after that encyclical, the official church dropped it like a hot potato. But a lot of these people in the church today are still continuing the idea that this is really going to work and it's a reasonable, a reasonable thing. Now, the reason for this type of arrangement conformed to much that has already been discussed with the addition of the notion that these thinkers saw competition as evil and therefore it must be limited. Corporatism believes the market to be chaotic. How many times have you heard that, the chaos of the market? Self-interest to be identical with selfishness, and workers automatically paid subsistence wages by greedy capitalists unless given official representation in the corporatist bodies. Again, very faulty economic theory here. Hegelian notions of benevolence, in a sense, omniscience of the state are seen in corporatist theory. By the time we get to the thought of Heinrich Pesch, whose dates are 1854 to 1926, and his Lehrbuch der Economie, which is five volumes published between 1909 and 1926, touted on one website by a non-economist whom I happen to know as the world's greatest Catholic economist, Catholic economic thought has already imbibed a great deal of Romanticism, Hegel, and the thought of the German historical school and corporatism. Now, there are some common roots here with Nazism. At this point, let us return to the thought of the socialist Ferdinand LaSalle, who's right there next to that German romanticism thing. Who was, he was quoted as an economic authority by Bishop von Kettler. See that guy? Right above LaSalle. He was quoted as an economic authority. He says, oh, he was absolutely right about all this stuff. LaSalle and Marx were on the same team for a time, but broke over the method by which each saw that socialism had to come about. While both of these men were German, Marx was an internationalist. He believed in a spontaneous industrial worldwide revolution and saw government as essentially an employee of the moneyed interests. The state could never be trusted to aid in a revolution until after the overthrow of the capitalists by the proletariat. The state apparatus would then be used by the now empowered workers to wipe out the last vestiges of capitalism and bourgeois class consciousness. As this is accomplished, the state withers away. 
LaSalle, on the other hand, believed that government was the main method that should be used to install socialism in society. Mises characterized LaSalle's thought as follows, quote, He proclaimed the gospel of class war. The progressives, as representatives of the bourgeoisie, he held were the mortal forces of labor. You should not fight the state, but the exploiting classes. The state is your friend. Of course, not the state governed by Herr von Bismarck, but the state controlled by me, LaSalle. <laughs> Since, however, LaSalle and Bismarck opposed the progressives, they became allies, and they even met secretly. Quote, again, Mises, they both aimed at supreme power in Germany. Neither Bismarck nor LaSalle was ready to renounce his claim to the first place. Yeah, evidently, they plotted together to work this out, and, and LaSalle was hoping that somehow Bismarck would vanish and he would get the job. Talk about romanticism. But the fact that LaSalle died at the young age of 42 in a duel in 1864 did not quell the movement toward the LaSallean plan. Bismarck knew that the proletariat made better monarchists, and he would use them against the liberals and the parliament. The fact that Bismarck installed the state socialist system demonstrate this point. But LaSalle's influence goes way beyond this, America, uh, this, uh, this immediate historical period. And again, this is von Mises again. LaSalle's brief demagogical career is noteworthy because for the first time in Germany's, the idea of socialism and etatism or statism appeared on the political scene as opposed to liberalism and freedom. LaSalle was not himself a Nazi, but was the most eminent forerunner of Nazism and the first German who aimed at the Fuhrer position. He rejected all the values of the Enlightenment, a key point for our discussion, and of liberal philosophy, but not as the romantic eulogists of the Middle Ages and royal legitimism did. He negated them, but he promised at the same time to realize them in a fuller and broader sense, again back to romanticism. Liberalism, he asserted, aims at spurious freedom, but I will bring you true freedom. And true freedom means the omnipotence of government. It is not the police who are the foes of liberty, but the bourgeoisie. The state is God. Watertime. Now this begs the question, who was more dangerous in the long run, Marx or LaSalle? There never was a spontaneous Marx-type revolution since he wrote the Manifesto in 1848. If I could turn my page. Lenin revised Marx's theory into a state socialist theory more similar to LaSalle's than to Marx. Stalin, Mao, and Castro became socialist dictators, self-appointed spokesmen for the working class, installing their version of socialism from the top down in the best LaSallean tradition. But the United States has not escaped the influence of LaSallean thought. Ever since the progressive era, it has been widely, widely assumed that an all-knowing, all-virtuous government has had the interests of the ordinary worker at heart. How many professors did we have in college who thought that? I think we all have. The progressive movement was actually a congeries of movements which had the following principles in common. Repudiation of the free market economy, concern for the underprivileged, popular control of government, employment of the process of government for the purpose of bringing industry under popular control. These motives are stated almost identically by the famous Jesuit theologian political theorist, Father John Courtney Murray, S.J. And while these ideas will be discussed some other time, suffice it to say that they were not scientific economic notions, but stemmed from the assumptions of LaSalle and the German historical school. 
Now, two things I'd like to add in this spot. Let me see. Good. The first of all is the influence of Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt was a Catholic and a jurist and a political legal theorist at the time. And he took what was called the Fuhrer principle and developed it to a high pitch. The Fuhrer principle essentially said, and, and by the way, this was an attack on the chaos of parliamentarism in the market, parliamentarianism in the market. He essentially said that every country has to have a leader, a Fuhrer, who represents in himself the interests and the thoughts and the hopes and dreams of all of the people. And ultimately, even if you do have a parliament, he still makes the final decisions, and he doesn't really have to listen to anything else in the society. Well, this is exactly the same as Rousseau's legislator, the guy who declares what the general will is. This is exactly the same. So you go from the romanticism of Rousseau all through this other stuff until you get the romanticism of the Fuhrer principle of Carl Schmitt, who was a devout Catholic, you see. The second thing is this. When Hitler wanted to get his um, emergency powers through after the Reichstag fire, he didn't have the votes. I guess you had to have a two-thirds vote to change the Constitution to give him all these emergency powers. He needed 21 votes. Who did he get the votes from? The Catholic Center Party. Because he promised not to persecute them. So they said, okay, here. Now, hindsight, of course, is 2020. Maybe they didn't think that anybody could be as bad as he eventually wound up being. But there you go. So in other words, the Catholics coming from this whole tradition actually, you know, gave Nazism a big, a big oomph. Now what I'd like to do in the final part of my talk is just to move a little bit to the philosophy of John Paul II when he was a philosophy professor. And uh, this appears, if you haven't read it, and it's not an easy book to read, but this appears in his book, The Acting Person. And it's interesting. Mises writes human action, he writes The Acting Person. Uh, now, this is not a treatise on economics, it's just a treatise on philosophy. But it's very, very interesting because you can see here that Karol Wojtyla and Ludwig von Mises were taking the philosophical currents of the time and basically, you know, withdrawing from them the same perspective on human nature, which one of the nice things about the Austrian school is that it is very, it is very philosophical, it has within it the seeds of understanding real people and what they really are, instead of some fabrication. Wojtyla, um, uh, on one hand, is an Aristotelian Thomist, and on the other hand, he's a phenomenologist. And because of this, he's very good at combining metaphysics and ethics. He says, people are understood through action. People are understood through action. There are four points, I guess, he makes in this, in this book. He says, in human experience, not only uh, we, in human in human experience, we experience not only cell, sense perceptions, but we experience things and people, and those are two parts of the world. Language discloses something of our res- reflected experience to others, and vice versa. So, in other words, they can't see our thoughts and feelings, but we can disclose them to other people. The subject of action is the human person. And we can know ourselves as a subject of action by kind of maintaining an objective distance from ourselves. And this is very similar to what Smith had said in his theory of moral sentiments. There's an objective judge in our own life which looks at what we're doing and makes moral judgments. 
Man also has self-possession, self-governance, and self-determination. Possession. Uh, well, I don't want to go through all the meanings of the terms. I just want to get to the, to the key of it. Uh, possession means that a person's actions flow from his authority over himself. Flow from his authority over himself. And he says flights of fancy, imaginary utopias, or, or you know, worshiping the past, ha-ha, or things like that, is a flight from that self-possession. This is the same thing you find with drug addiction or alcohol addiction. That's kind of fascinating that he's really equating the romantics with drug addicts and alcohol, alcoholics. Now, if a person is self-possessed, they are also self-governing. And this is man's distinctive property. The purpose of self-governance is to order one's actions to his existential ends. In other words, you order one's actions to the things that your nature is supposed to be doing or supposed to be enhancing. Now, for example, yeah, I, ha- I can drive my car off a cliff and kill myself, but that doesn't enhance my nature. So I'm supposed to have self-possession and self-governance to do things that enhance this nature of mine. Now, here is where man acts come in. Man acts are rulership over the dynamic energy of one's being. It has self-control, control over your passions and desires. Self-governance is related to your life decisions. Self-governance and divine governance are related since man is the only being whose existence is willed for its own sake. And true freedom exists in this self-governance. So self-governance now makes possible self-determination. You say, I will to do something, or I may, but I will not do it. I don't will to do it, etc. The person acts with self-awareness. He wills what exactly exists. You can't will what can't or won't exist. And the will is decisive in each of these cases. Now, there's a difference between act and action in his thought. An act is mere thinking. And I'm not sure, uh, I don't speak Polish, I don't know Polish, so I don't know where that what word exactly uses for that, but that's the way it's translated. So an act is mere thinking. But an action is actually doing something. So mere thinking really has no meaning. Like you say, talk is cheap. Well, thinking is cheap. So you can think about doing something, but that doesn't show anything about yourself. It's actually going out and executing the thought, which shows something about yourself. When a person does an action, the world is permanently changed. Even if it's a small action that can't really be measured, the world is permanently changed. And in doing an action, you actualize your nature. You actualize your nature. It fleshes out what we really are. You know, for example, you have, uh, say, a five-year-old. Well, you might want the five-year-old to be, you know, a big uh, industrial tycoon or a monk or a pool hustler or whatever. But he's the one that has to make the decisions through life. And eventually, when you get to be my age, you can't really change that. I can't go back and say, you know, um, I want to be a professional football player. I die in about two minutes on the field, so that'll be the end of it. I can't do that anymore. But I, what the path I've taken, I've made myself, if you will. I have the responsibility of creating myself by this. 
All right, I don't want to go on too much with this. But anyway, the whole point of this thing is, is that John Paul II, Carol Wojtyla, uh, pushes the idea of responsibility, creativity of mankind, right? Which is very similar to what the Austrians believe about men. If we didn't think this was true, we wouldn't support the free market. We'd say, no, people have to have somebody else to tell them what to do, somebody of kind of a higher level or whatever. Now, this flies in the face of all this because none of the people on this board, on this little diagram here, believed in any of this. They believed men couldn't be trusted to do the right thing. They didn't believe that men were co-creators with God, that they had that responsibility. And John Paul II says in, in one of his works, he says, none of the advances we have today, technological or anything else, is opposed to the biblical injunction uh, to go and multiply and subdue the earth. That this is all part of what God has planned for human beings to do, to be the co-creators with him. Thank you very much. Questions? Do we do questions? Or? Yes, sir. Can you give us a little bit more, um, sort of a, give us a capsule summary of, of Pesh's thought? Since the IHS people seem to have latched on to him. Right, great yeah. Um, Pesh is interesting. Pesh understands industry. He understands that there needs to be trade between people and things like that. But after a certain point, you know, after you and I are trading, there has to be a government policy to decide what's good for you to have, what's good for you to produce, and what's not good to produce. So in other words, the government itself has these ends which are accomplished over and above the ends of the individuals. So in other words, we see society in the market as sui generis, right? He doesn't. He sees the society in the market as, as generated from the top, and just we're allowed to do a little trading of ourselves to keep ourselves going and that kind of thing. So that's, uh, that is very much the, the essence of his, his thought. And if, um, if you didn't have the state guiding and telling everybody what to do, then there would be market chaos. It would be totally chaotic. People are producing all sorts of things, and some, for some reason we would produce what people didn't want to buy. And he had no concept of the, the sovereign consumers and, and that kind of thing at all. Um, uh, let's see. He also believed, he also accepted, um, he accepted the wage fund doctrine and the... Um, the um, getting old here. The um, what? Iron uh, the iron law of wages. Yeah, the iron law of wages. Sure, from from the classicals, but also from von Kettler, who pushed that like crazy. And von Kettler, von Kettler himself was the first one to bring up the social question. Von Kettler was a romantic. He was in the romantic uh, a club with Gores, who was a German romantic. And uh, he was von Kettler. He was he was a, a higher level person in society. Never really saw a factory. Never worked in the factory. But when he became bishop of Mainz, he saw all these workers, and he had never seen people so look so down and out and everything like that. But of course, not realizing that life on the farm where they had come was even worse. So he's all these poor people. What's the solution? The solution is this evil capitalism thing, because capitalism is keeping people at this level whereby they're paid only enough so they can have energy to come to work, and that's it, because the capitalist is so stingy. So therefore, they're evil. So coming from that, Pesh, ha-ha, the only way we're going to remedy this is from above. that help? Yeah, go ahead. Pesh seems to refer quite a bit to Schmaler. Yes. And he takes his side in the opponent's right against Menger. Yes. And so on. I don't see Schmaler up there. 
Well, I didn't. Well, I didn't put everybody in there. I just no, put I some of them in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, smaller. You would put smaller coming out of the German Romantic School, right? And then just stick them in that box, and then have another hour to pesh. Yeah. And there were a lot of them. What happens when I was doing all this research? Is, geez, there are a lot of these people. So I only put a couple in for uh, just interest and yeah. Absolutely. Jesuits. Yep. Exactly right. That's that's an excellent case, and if I had another lecture to give, that would be another lecture I would go through. It would be really easy. Um, I think, first of all, people are ignorant of the School of Salamanca. They're, they're really ignorant of it, and their stuff has only come out in some circles. You know, So, of course, Rothbard writes about it, and Schumpeter writes about it, and uh, Alessandro Chalfin wrote uh, books on it and things like that. But they are really ignorant of it. And the other thing is, the Jesuits are interested more in what these guys have to say because they see these guys as Catholic. Like so many of the people I've run into you know, in my circles... They, this is the Catholic teaching, and the other stuff is just bupkis, and they don't know anything about the others. So, <laughs> nice New York uh, Yiddish phrase. <laughs> you can tell where I'm from. But uh, that, and that's where that happens, and they, they just refuse to see through it. Even my own doctoral mentor, Father Canavan, who, who is more on our side than most of these other Jesuits, nevertheless, he thinks I've gone over the deep end you know, with this stuff. But that's because he doesn't understand it either. He can kind of be excused he's 83 now, so... I don't expect too many new things. Yes, sir. Yes. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say the acting person is a philosophical work, not a theological work. But I think... Thinking, let's, let's take the, the case from Scripture, which specifically related to adultery, right? I say to you, if you, if you even think about adultery with a woman, you've committed the sin already. Um, and, of course, that's prohibited by the commandments. That's covetousness. So uh, Christ also said that the bad things of a man don't, don't come in from the outside. They come from him. They come out from him. So I think it's fairly true, but nevertheless, the doing of the thing is worse than the thinking about it. I think that's what he would probably say. So you're right. Sin-wise, if you think about, like if I think about robbing the bank and I happen to trip and break my leg on the way there and my machine gun goes down the drain, you know, and I go, oh, shucks, I didn't make it. I've still robbed the bank, essentially. But the actual doing of the rob, rob the bank really, really fits uh, in, your, in your persona now. Um, I remember just recently, uh, you know, my wife and I have been talking about some of these criminals you hear about and, and read about, et cetera, and how how really evil and vicious they are, and they have no sympathy for their no sympathy for their victims. I remember talking to one of my theology professors about it, and what she said is what happened was they started to make choices in their younger life, which started them on a path, and then their hearts got hardened, and then that's kind of what they do for a living. Like, I'm a professor. I can't really do much else, you know? And I see that because they're, we have a tendency to say, oh, they must be crazy. 
No, they're not crazy. They started doing this and they got comfortable with it and the tree bent in the wrong direction. Uh huh, that's just let me know not to go over. Uh, yes, sir. Can I just pick up this point made by the gentleman from the business school? First of all, by the way, we should be aware that there are three things we can be guarded about. One is the number of women who are participants. The second one is what a practitioner will say in the business of culture. The third is what a judge will think of. Yes, and the fact that we had John Paul II kind of opening the door to this is very true. And so now, um, you know, if this was the 1950s, I probably would have been burned at the stake. And in fact, someone that I know, uh, and that Thomas Woods has debated, has said that he should be excommunicated. Yeah, because, you know, he and I are like peas in a pod. We'd agree on everything, but this guy just holds on to this as this, this was coming right out of heaven, you know. But yes, you're right, and it is moving in that direction uh, there are so many uh, decent Catholics out. The, the Catholics that are involved in the Austrian economics movement, and that this fellow who said he should be excommunicated can't understand. He can't understand it. He quotes Austrians completely out of context. You know he hasn't read them. He'll take a sentence. Well, you know, it's like you could do with St. Thomas. And St. Thomas asks in the Summa, uh, the question, does God exist? And you know, the way the scholastics work, first you have objections. Then you have the other side, and then he explains. Well, if you take the objections to be the thought of the person writing, you get confused. So St. Thomas says, it seems that God does not exist. Aha, St. Thomas was an atheist. And that's what he does. <laughs> Takes one thing out of context and say, well, even the Austrians think this. It wasn't not true if you read the whole book. Uh, anybody else? Yes, sir. Um, I think it's had, it's had a great influence on on economics and Catholic economics and in the church it's had influence. For example, the, uh, the church has come out recently with a compendium of Catholic social teaching and they, if you read through that, I, I got that and I said, oh gee, here we go. Well, you know they had soft pedal a lot of this other stuff. It's selections from previous encyclicals and they left out some of the more horrendous stuff. So if you look, you see the modern stuff is very market friendly and they put the things in the past that, that were more market-friendly and ignored the hostile type of thing. So that's working out there. 
then there's this encyclopedia of uh, of Catholic social teaching. And if you go to the to the article on capitalism, it's written by a Benedictine priest. I don't know what his background is, uh, so I don't know him. So, but uh, everything he says is really market friendly until he gets to the United States, and then he picks up uh, Monsignor New Deal. What was his name? Um, Monsignor John Ryan. He picks up on him, and all of a sudden it turns socialist, as if John Ryan was like the Pope. So, you know, they really don't know what they're doing. But the fact that the first part of that article, the first two-thirds of it, was very market-friendly and actually quite true with what he said there uh, is, a, is a positive thing, I think. I just wish I had written it, that's all. <laughs> yes, sir? Uh, would you like to comment on the growth of John Paul II's ideas between... Solicitudo Socialis. Ray Socialis, yeah. Ten years before. Yes, uh, yes. I first read that and I was totally disgusted with it. Not that there's not some truth of things in there, of course. It's fairly long, so my wife would say I stopped clock is right twice a day. But um, there were, it was very market hostile in there. And um, he basically was parroting this or stuff that had gone before, which is weird because because of his philosophical background, he knew better, but it may be that he felt, as a relatively new pope at the time, that he had to continue in that hostile tradition. But again, I think, I think the watershed period was when he met with Hayek, and I think Hayek straightened him out. And that's, so that's why Sentences is essentially different than that previous encyclical. Unfortunately, people still quote that other one, so... But it's very interesting that even, even popes can develop. And these things, remember, are not related to the theological directly. They're not pronouncements on the meaning of scriptural passages or saying, well, does, does the Trinity have five or six persons in or anything like that. It has nothing to do with that. <laughs> these are the church's reflections on moral aspects of social life. And it's interesting because in Centesimus Masonis he says the church has no models to offer. Good, because in the past they were offering models. And finally, they now have dropped that, and I hope that continues. Now, however, I do have to say, the new pope, Benedict XVI, has written a very fine encyclical called Deus Caritas Est, God is Love. But in there, he has a little bit of social theory part, and he, he, he praises von Kettler. He doesn't say anything specific about him. He says just the wonderful writings of people who've been concerned about the working poor, etc., like Bishop von Kettler. And I go, oh, geez. So... <laughs> Is he giving lip service? I don't know. I don't know. Okay, last question. Okay. Okay, last question. Yeah, I think I think Novak. If you stick to his economics, he's make, made a wonderful uh, contribution because he is another one who has thoroughly explicated why understanding and accepting a free market is totally consistent with Catholicism. And the fact, as we would all agree in this room, in fact, the Ten Commandments is on the, the von Mises Institute emblem, that you have to have a moral society in order to have a functioning market. You have to be able to trust people. If you can't trust them, you know, and if the government is corrupt, well, <laughs> that's kind of like redundancy. <laughs> but uh, if there isn't some stable rule of law, and if you can't trust uh, people to, or at least courts, say, to give you a fair shake or whatever, and everything's run by bribery, then you can't have a functioning economic system. So you go to a lot of these Middle Eastern countries, and the only kind of stores you see are little stands on the side of the road where some guy sells the pots that his wife is currently at home making out of clay. He'll sell those pots and goes home, but he can't make any contracts for any long-term deals because nobody can be trusted. So you have to have this moral basis, which is kind of nice, uh, the way the market flourished in the West because we already had that. 
And now if we lose that, which is another subject, if we lose that, then it's going to be more difficult to run a market. So thank you so much. Thank you very much.